Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a highly uh, intelligent guy who I met in person a couple months ago, and uh, he and I just just hit it off. I could say you know two intelligent guys meeting, but but that'd be a lie because there, <laughs> there was only one intelligent guy, and it was this guy in the multifamily space has a phenomenal background, making a lot of money for other people, and finally decided, you know what, I'm going to start making all this money for myself. He is. <laughs> the CEO and managing partner of Indelible Capital Partners. He is Evan Shields. Evan, welcome to... <laughs> I feel I feel like this is Creed three, and I'm, I'm like, uh, you know, get, getting onto the boxing stage, ready, ready to rock and roll. Listen, you're so excited you didn't even let me finish your name. So today we have with us Evan Shields. Evan, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much, Roger. It's such a pleasure to be here. But you know, you've, you're sharing my enthusiasm, and I can't tell you I don't feel quite flattered and excited. So, uh, Evan, we met, we broke bread, had some good yucks. But for the audience' sake, give us the Evan Shields background. Where are you from, and uh, kind of from where you're from? How did it wind up to today? Where, you know, give us the little reader's digest. Absolutely. I'll try to cut it down to two to three minutes if I can, uh, yep. as I learned in business school once upon a time. But uh, my name is Evan Shields, founder, CEO, managing partner of Indelible Capital Partners, Indelicap for short. I come from really a, a super hardworking, middle-income to working-class African-American family uh, from the Midwest. Uh, we're originally from Northwest Indiana, right outside Chicago. But mom, dad, and I, only child, we bounced around the entire Eastern U.S. Uh, we weren't in a military family, just for, I, I think, give or take. Uh, moved to a different state or city almost every two years until I got almost to middle school. And then I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And I already came from a family that was so deeply rooted in service and community and giving back and being... Uh, really a part of change, uh, positive change in communities. You know, a lot of my family were teachers, were preachers, were steel workers, uh, who worked in the unions, who, who really uh, gave back in a lot of different ways. And growing up in Birmingham, really in, in one of the homes of the civil rights movement, I think had an incredible impact on me as a kid. And so when I graduated from the University of Virginia, I wanted to become a third generation public school teacher in low income schools. I say third generation and I mean that. Uh, my family, my great grandmother was the first to go to college. Such a blessing. She became a teacher. My grandmother and all of my grandparents actually were educators in public schools. And I became the third generation to teach and that changed my life. You know, not only did I get to do what I, what I, what I love, which is really serving communities. I met my wife, a beautiful Haitian girl from Florida, who would one day bring me down to Florida. We'll talk more about that later, I'm sure. But also, 
Ironically, I got involved in real estate as an educator. So to give some context for the audience here, I taught on the South side of Atlanta, one of the, at the time, worst performing high schools coming right out of the Great Recession, ninth grade algebra teacher. It was truly lean on me in a lot of different ways, but I worked with so many people that were passionate about turning our situation around. And I recognized that just having flashy lesson plans is not going to change everything. We've really got to think outside the box. And so I got uh, rooted in the community as an organizer, knocking on doors, trying to empower social movements. And that's when I realized that, wow, we, a lot of our issues are because of a lack of economic development and communities like mine that are underprivileged, under-resourced, underserved, underestimated. And I recognize that real estate is one of the biggest and greatest ways for economic mobility. A lot of times in our industry, we talk about economic mobility in terms of investors. I think that we should often think about economic mobility in terms of communities, because real estate truly impacts it, whether it's workforce housing, putting a roof over people's heads, uh, if they have, you know, giving them a quality place to live, industrial assets that help create jobs, and retail grocery anchored uh, centers that help close food deserts. And I said, man, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. A mentor gave me Don Peebles' memoir, the people's principles, an African-American real estate developer based out of DC, looks like me, doing great deals around the country. I figured if he can do it, I can do it. He also didn't come from a, a, a blue chip real estate background. He jumped into it. And I actually spoke to over a hundred real estate professionals, everything from bankers, developers, attorneys, you name it. I figured out this is what I want to do. One thing led to another. I ended up going back to school to get my MBA from UNC Chapel Hill, focused in real estate. I wound up on Wall Street after graduating. I worked with institutional commercial real estate investment shops in New York before getting married and and relocating to Miami for my wife's career. I became a senior and C-suite executive with real estate investment and development shops down here in South Florida. And then decided, you know what, after almost 10 years of being in the commercial real estate industry and a $4 billion investment track record in institutional and middle market real estate, why why, why should I let everybody else have this fun? Why don't I jump into this space and and figure some stuff out? So I know I said that would be two or three minutes. I think that was more like five. But you know, that, that kind of gets to my story and, and, and where I am today. And I found it in Devil Cap about, uh, at this point, we're, we're chatting in March, end of March 2023, about eight months ago. I'm on track to hopefully acquire my first $25 million of assets under management this year with the goal to acquire a billion dollars of AUM over the next 10 years. You're focused. When you were working in South Florida, when you moved down there and you were working in, I think you said institutional real estate. And I guess in that vein, what was it specifically? So were you, were you doing acquisitions? Were you asset managing? Was it all the above? What asset class, classes, et cetera? Yeah, let me step back uh, because I've had an opportunity for better or worse to have worn almost every hat that one has to wear in a commercial real estate investment or development business, 
with the exception of accounting. I haven't done raw accounting. But when I started my career with Prudential, Pegem Real Estate to be specific in New York, I worked as a commercial mortgage originator. So I was on the acquisition side, originating new investments, doing everything from relationship management with developer and asset manager clients to bringing in deals, originating, underwriting, structuring, and closing those transactions. I did over a little, a little over 400 million of commercial loans, every asset class with proof from multifamily to self storage, industrial, retail, office, and mixed use. And I actually was recruited into my next gig with a small but mighty shop called R4 Capital, letter R, number four capital in New York, which is one of the leading affordable housing. Litech and tax exempt bond syndicators in the US. With them, I managed almost two and a half billion in affordable housing bonds to essentially finance the construction, adaptive reuse, or renovation or acquisition of almost 9,000 units of affordable housing in 16 states in every corner of the country. I did all that before moving to Miami. And in Miami, I was VP of IR for a debt fund where I helped structure syndicated and fund vehicles to invest in commercial real estate of every single asset class. And before forming Indelible, I was COO of a workforce housing developer and solar uh, finance and development company, really a family office in a lot of ways. Uh, doing new construction of those assets across the Southeast, particularly in South Florida. So it's been a very, pretty varied career. I've worked in every major asset class, mostly on the investment side, but most recently before founding my company on the development side. Pretty cool. Let me ask you this, uh, just just for my own learning curve, because that's that's my selfish reason for doing the podcast is to learn. When you were a commercial mortgage originator, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Does that mean you were a guy that actually sold the mortgages and were a, com- were a, were a commission sales guy? Or is it does that mean something else? I have a feeling it does, but that's why I'm asking the question. You know, to step back in layman's terms, on the equity side of the business, we call it acquisitions. And on the debt side of the business, we call it originations. Pretty much the same thing. When you work for a lender and you're an originator at the end of the day, your job is first and foremost to work on the sales side to do relationship management of clients. But then once you bring in those clients, as if you're a good originator, you're also an underwriter at heart. So you're not only bringing in those deals, you're underwriting them you're structuring them, and then you're running that deal to close. And then once it closes in the lending side of the world, you flip the deal over to asset management and servicing. And just like on the equity side of the business, where after you close a newly acquired asset, we obviously flip it over to asset management to to manage the business plan all the way through reversion. Exact same thing. That sounds like that could be an incredibly lucrative line of work. Something tells me, and just out of curiosity, what did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? And and we don't need to dwell on that specifically because I know you've done vastly many other things in all facets, but just out of curiosity, 
I could see myself doing that. It would suit me because it seems like it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, listen, I'll say this. Part of the reason I'm in an equity investment and development now in real estate is because it's just that much more lucrative <laughs> than, than the debt side of the business. But what's really cool, and you know, for anybody, especially who was in my shoes at that time, a 20-something who's trying to break into this industry, maybe you don't look like everybody else who's in the room. I certainly didn't. <laughs> but uh, working on the debt side of the business is a great way to start because when you're doing development, you're maybe working on one deal every two to five years. If you're doing equity investments, maybe you're doing two or three or up to, let's say, 10 deals a year. When you work on the debt side of the business as a lender, you're potentially working on dozens of deals a year. And so, especially as an originator at a multinational institutional investment shop like Prudential, I got an opportunity to look at a ton of deals. I, I'd say in even just a one-year time, I probably reviewed and maybe underwrote and thought about seriously structuring almost a hundred deals. And I tell some people, it was almost as if I got a second MBA in just structuring and underwriting. And I got to work on some cool stuff, man. I, I helped finance a couple of floors of the Empire State Building. I had a chance to do a recap of Rent the Runways Industrial Footprint in New Jersey. I had a chance to do a 300 plus unit multifamily renovation deal in Durham, North Carolina. I had an amazing time to learn while also getting paid. And it really set me up well for what I do in, in other roles uh, in New York and Miami. What would you say? So, so I, I think you said, you know, you, you've been doing your own thing now for eight months. Congratulations. What Thank it, you. you're, yeah, you're welcome. Um, how is it different, uh, from being an employee? Oh my God. Everybody wants to act like entrepreneurship is sexy and let's be real. It is, but it's a grind. You know, at the end of the day, I don't make money and I don't eat unless I kill some game. <laughs> you know, to use a hunter's uh, sports reference here, you know? So the, the buck really stops with me. I think what's been really cool about working at institutional and middle market shops is you've got friends, colleagues, folks who are working beside you in everything that you're doing. Oh man, this issue happened with this property. Well, thank God we have an asset management department. Okay, I need to think through this interesting tax structure for this particular investor. Thank God we've got a CFO or a controller or a finance department. When you're running your own business, I'm wearing all of the hats. Yeah. And so, you know, there there really is a lot of balancing of both time and priorities. And it's the first time in my life I've, I've had to do that as an entrepreneur. I've, I've, I've never done this before. And it's pretty interesting. There's always a lot to learn and always areas for growth. You know what? Once upon a time, 
Uh, I started my own business and for many years had did every single facet. It was an ad agency and did everything myself for years, uh, which I will not dwell on because our topic of conversation today is you, not me. But I, I feel you is what I'm telling you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, if anybody goes to my website right now at delicap.com, I-N-D-E-L-I-C-A-P.com, to save money, I wrote the script for that entire website myself. Exactly. My investment memo for every deal that I'm working on, I did it from scratch. When I get new deals from brokers or off market from relationships that I've built, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the deals that I'm up to uh, in a second. I'm underwriting the entire deal myself. I'm papering the LOI myself. I'm papering the PSA myself. I am structuring it myself, hunting and, and building investor relationships, both on the equity, you know, GPLP side of the equation, but also on the deal debt structuring side of the equation, which, hey, thankfully I come from a mostly debt background. So I've built quite a, a few various relationships amongst every sort of lender from agencies to debt funds. But a lot of times I'm not necessarily working with a mortgage banker to do that structuring. I'm doing it myself. And so I think that that's one of the challenges I've seen as an entrepreneur. And I think it's part of the the, the fire under my butt to build a great business that gives me an opportunity to hire that next generation talent, to bring on the best technology. You know, I, I, I say that this year for me, I'm really focused on building a business. And next year, my focus is going to be on time, talent, and tech. Because I think with the best use of my time and hiring the best talent and using the best-in-class uh, tech in our space, I think that I can build a world-class firm that can hopefully leap, uh, go leaps and bounds over the competition. Again, been there. And, uh, you know, my life changed once I started hiring people, but it took me forever, but unrelated to you. So uh, tell me about the deal that you, you and I talked about a couple months ago. I cannot, even though I claim to have a good memory, I actually don't remember. Was, <laughs> was, I think it was in contract at that time. That was mid-January, but correct me if I'm wrong. Is it, it was. And unfortunately, I can't speak in detail about if the deal fell through, but I think it's there hopefully will be some good lessons learned for other entrepreneurs listening to this who might certainly be in my shoes. I think it was a great deal. What I can say about it, it was a institutional mixed use, mostly multifamily retail. Well, I, I'd say that the deal was going to be for about a little over a hundred units of multifamily, 10,000 square feet of retail. My team and I were going to split up the multifamily portion to be 90% multi and 10% set aside for short-term rental slash corporate leasing, which I think is a really interesting concept to think about as we get into the post-pandemic economy. And unfortunately, the deal fell through in diligence, right? But I'm really proud that it was my first deal. I got it under LOI, was negotiating a PSA directly with the seller. It was a 100% off-market transaction. Literally, and, and, and a lot of people like love to throw around off-market in our, in our industry. 
I literally just found the seller's info on a major market intelligence service that everybody uses, like his, his phone number and email. And it was just a matter of giving him a quick call and building that relationship and figuring out what deal made sense for him and for me. Now, even though that deal fell through, I'm really excited for some other ones we've got in the, in the pipeline. Let me hopefully. Let me, yeah. let me, let me rudely interrupt. Uh, of course, please. Okay. First question is, is did you have uh, earnest money uh, down on it? I did not. Okay. That's Thank good. God. <laughs> All right. And then, what, and, God. Then, and then what fell through? I mean, it's a fat, this is really why I want to interview you because I know you're so close to that deal and you're on the ground, which is, is more interesting to me than people that are higher that have bigger teams. And, and, and it's more just at 50,000 feet those conversations are just personally less interesting to me. So these are more, so, so the question I have is what fell through in due diligence? That's a, that's an interesting thing. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it actually, it's not even that sexy. It was a tax issue. Mm. So for your listeners, no matter where you are, I think one of the things a lot of people mess up in underwriting on deals and by underwriting on deals, let's be specific. I'm talking you're a value-add investor or developer with this explicit purpose of acquiring real estate that's class B or C, and you're planning to do some type of value-add business plan, and it's existing real estate. Notice how I said real estate, not multifamily, because the issue that I'm about to speak about can really affect any asset class, whether it's multi-retail, office, mixed-use, et cetera. Every state is different and where people mess up is how they underwrite the taxes a lot of times. Every state, county, municipality is so nuanced. And in this case, this deal was in Tampa, which is a phenomenal, fantastic market. I say Florida is the fastest growing state in the country. Orlando, it's really central Florida, inclusive of Tampa and Orlando, is the fastest growing area. Miami and South Florida, also Fort Lauderdale, West Palm Beach has its own amazing dynamic as well. But Tampa, I'm very bullish on. And one of the things that's interesting about the state of Florida in a great way is we are such a pro-business state, not only in our policy, but also in the fact that we have no state, county, or city income tax, just like our friends over in Texas. The challenge of that is that the state, we're the third biggest state in the country. We got to make up that tax revenue somewhere else. And if, it, if we're not getting those taxes from folks like you, Roger, who are coming to visit us in South Beach and are, are you know, we're taxing you as a tourist, <laughs> we're going to tax our real estate uh, through property taxes. So what you often see across the state of Florida is when a property trades hands, the county tax assessor's office mm. essentially reassesses that property at anywhere between 70 to 90% of whatever you paid as the purchase price. That's the new tax assessed value. And that's what they're going to base the taxes on moving forward. And that's unfortunately what fell through in this deal because this deal was a class A minus deal, excellent condition, very well located in Tampa we had a small value-add business plan, my team and I, but unfortunately couldn't wrap our heads around the tax because we're uh, at a certain purchase price 
that meant that our new tax value was going to be too high for the property to take on, uh, unfortunately, in the real estate taxes. And it fell through. Okay. Who knows? Maybe it'll come back. Well, what would come back? You mean the deal? Maybe the deal will come back. You know, never, at a lower never, at a lower price, maybe so that maybe, it can, yeah, maybe we'll see. Nothing, no, nothing's ever really dead in our industry. Right. right? A smart way to look at it. Um. So okay. So what next? So I've got some exciting deals that I'm I'm looking to put under LOI, hopefully in Florida. I try to be really strategic with what I'm doing. You know, I didn't share this, but the vision for Indelible is we are an impact-driven real estate development and investment firm. I believe fundamentally that every deal not only has to match risk-adjusted high investor returns, which for me look like at least a 20 plus percent IRR on five-year hold, that's internal rate of return, minimum two times equity multiple. That means if you give me money now, I will hopefully double your money <laughs> within five years. But every deal that I do has to meet my impact criteria because at the end of the day, I'm investing for impact. And the impact that I'm looking to do is I want to invest in deals that are in communities that truly are in need of economic development or a, a, a restart or jump or boost that are under-resourced or underserved. I really look to empower in every way that I can diverse operating partners in my deals, whether it's capital partners, whether it's operating partners like GCs, architects, engineers, appraisers, et cetera, who might come from underrepresented backgrounds. And the other thing that I look to do is to really uplift sustainability in projects that I'm working on. I love adaptive reuse, the idea of this is an aged structure that might even be an eyesore, but it could also be an opportunity for redevelopment, sustainable redevelopment. Instead of this property just sitting here, let's give it a new life as a different asset. If it, let's say it was industrial or it was an old office facility, can we acquire this and change this into beautiful multifamily housing or a mixed use asset? Or you know, to the extent that we're renovating, are there ways that we can use sustainable building prod products, sustainable architecture to think through creating green strategies for our utility spend in the property. These are all things that I think about as I look at, at, at deals. And so right now, my goal is 25 million AUM, hopefully this year. I want to get to maybe 30 to 50 next year and then kind of grow that by 10 to 50% every year until I get to a billion dollar goal of AUM by 20, uh, by 2033. And further, I want to start with Florida this year. So really this year, I'm only doing deals in Florida to the best extent possible. I'm bullish on South Florida, West Palm Beach, Broward, Miami-Dade. I'm bullish on Central Florida, Greater Orlando and Tampa Bay. I think Jacksonville and Duval County is an amazing investment opportunity, as well as the Panhandle. Everywhere from Pensacola to Tallahassee and Destin and, 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 and Panama City, there's some great opportunities there. 
And investing in Florida, it's like investing in four different states, you know, with uh, each with their own kind of flavor and, and, and economic characteristics, which is really interesting. And from there, I'm hoping to expand to the rest of the Southeast next year. Do uh, are you pretty much focused on multifamily? Because I know you have experience across. The- pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. So this year, I'm really focused on Class B and Class C, and I'll drill down even more. Not only am I focused on Florida and deals that match my impact criteria that I just mentioned, but I'm focusing even more on Class B, Class C assets with the 1960s to 2000s vintage that have good bones that meet my risk-adjusted return parameters, which, as I mentioned, were 20% plus IRR on a five-year hold for the business plan, two times plus equity multiple. I'm less stressed about cash on cash, but to the best extent possible, I try to focus on 6% plus average cash on cash, hopefully more. And really, I try to look for lower middle market deals. So deals that are between 20 and 100 units at a good basis per unit. 20 to 100 units? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And then, so question is, in certain markets, uh, let's call it Phoenix, let's call it Dallas, mm-hmm. as a couple examples, those Class C in particular has come down 20%. And I've talked to people that believe that A, it's going to come back and has to come back. It's going to come down and has to come down even more. And it will because these people are over leveraged, floating debt, uh, super high delinquencies, and are not going to be able to get refi and and think it's going to turn into somewhat of of a disaster. My question is, and I know Florida, I think to your point, has been so much growth what are you seeing in, in class B and class C? And those are two separate things. Prices, mm-hmm. have they come down? Are they, I mean, because the world is so, the interest rate environment, you know, isn't, that's not state by state. That's, that's, that's uh, you know, national. So what what are you seeing? There's so many fluctuations and you're right. There, there are some differences between class B and C. I think until the first quarter of this year, I think we had a, a really big, to use the Wall Street term, bid-ask spread. There was just such an off asymmetry between where sellers thought their deals could price set and where buyers wanted to place them at. Just putting the listener in our shoes, you know, just looking at Roger and Evan here as, as syndicators and asset managers and developers, I'm looking at a class let's say B minus or C deal, I'm looking to do a renovation play. I'm trying to get gross up as much debt proceeds as I can. You know, maybe I'm going out for a loan that'll get me to 70 to 80% loan to costs or LTC. And more times than not, no matter who you're going to for that loan, whether it's a bank loan, probably not likely, just given with the volatility, we're seeing banks draw back quite a bit. But let's say you're going out for debt fund financing everybody, every lender's spreads are increasing. You know, they're trying to not only price in interest rate risk, but they're also pricing in real estate exposure risk. They're pricing in market risk. 
You know, a lot of these markets like Florida, we don't know when the music's going to stop here. Yeah, every single town is growing almost exponentially. But at some point, they're not going to grow anymore. And we, like Texas, have the specter of climate change. You know, so much of the, so many of these cities across Florida that everybody wants to go to, Jacksonville, you know, South Florida, Miami, maybe Southwest Florida, Fort Myers, Naples, is unfortunately in the way of a hurricane <laughs> or is dealing with sea level rise. So we're seeing insurance premiums skyrocket out the wazoo. So when you're a seller, looking at your lender knows the risk and they're pricing it in. And then you've got the additional risk of you know, insurance and other items in the Sunbelt to think about. Because I know Texas is going through some insurance issues too. You're going to want to bid a little bit lower. But you know what's interesting? I've been seeing some broker deals lately that are starting to come in at the right price. Yeah. Where they're starting to say, you know what? Let's dial things down and be a little bit more realistic. And I'm appreciative of that. I really am. So I think you're going to start to see more uh, broker transactions come into reality where we're going to have some issues are off-market deals. Because if a seller is trying to offload something off-market, it's because something's going on with the asset or the plan that, that, that for whatever reason, they, they know that they are going to try to get whatever price they can, and they don't necessarily want to pay those broker fees, even though brokers have an invaluable role in our industry. And a lot of times, that's probably, to your point, going to be because they're coming off of a non-performing loan, whether it's CMBS, agency, or bank debt. And so I think you're going to see, I really do believe this knock on wood, either this year or, or by Q1 of next, you're going to start to see a lot of distressed class B minus to C acquisition opportunities where probably, you know, things got really frothy, I think, up to the pandemic. And then after we figured stuff out during the pandemic, you had a lot of first time syndicators and, and real estate entrepreneurs going out and doing deals. And not everybody knew what they were doing. <laughs> You know, I think the last three, four years, you could throw a rock at a building and make some money. Those times are almost over. They're not over yet, but they're almost over. And so I think that there's going to be some distress in the market for sure. And I'm going to take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I was driving at. I just didn't know what the the uh, situation was like in Florida yeah, I, I just interviewed just for the sake of conversation that we're having uh, on Sunday. I interviewed a guy that's that I've had uh, have had investments with for over twenty years. He he is an old man like me, uh, much 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 richer than I am, and he's he oversees a portfolio at this point of like almost twenty five thousand units. He's probably one of the top fifty in the country, I think, or thereabouts. But somehow the conversation turned towards Class C, which he does not do and, and has done in his career because his career is almost 40 years at this point. And he just said that, man, it's just like so risky just because of delinquencies and that operators, newer to your point, newer operators just have no way really to budget OPEC, CapEx for that. They have no idea. Always higher than what you think it's going to be. Can't see 
behind the walls, can't see, you know, the plumbing, can't see the sewers. And it's they're functionally obsolete and um he, he not not a big fan, but you know, that being said, there are people that, you know, do class C, that's all they've done. And but it's a it's a dicey place, but everything at a price, right? I mean, if it gets if and well, I don't think it's if when it gets cheap enough, if you're an experienced operator, look, there's still a shortage of housing in a, a market like Florida. People are moving, moving, moving. They're they're not all you know people moving from Manhattan to South Beach and could pay you know fifty five hundred a month in rent, right? So you, mm-hmm. you still have a you know a service class of people. So I'm I'm talking too much, but um, so twenty units to a hundred. Why I guess are you thinking that? I know it's hard to raise capital when you're starting too, or are you trying to stay underneath the radar, or what? What's the thinking there? So my thinking there is I think. One, a duplex and a 20-unit building, they're both going to take the same amount of work to get that deal closed. So we're going to make a lot, it makes a lot more economical sense to do at least 20 units. But why 100? Because I'm trying to grow economies of scale as a business. The other thing is I've also got a different approach from your, let's say, typical syndicator or first-time operator coming into this business. So because I come from an institutional background, $4 billion track record, I'm thinking like an institution when I'm looking at deals. And there still is a lot of institutional money, both from pension funds, uh, from, from family offices, from large private equity outfits out there that is floating around looking for deals and looking for the right operators. I know this for a fact because I've had an opportunity to interface with quite a few of them that said, hey, we'll back you on your next deal. And so one of the things that I'm actually challenging myself to do is instead of trying to do the typical syndicator model on my deals, I actually am doing really what's a more traditional GPLP split where I'm coming in for 5 to 10% of the GP commitment as a firm, either with myself and or co-GPs, if I could bring some in. And I, I love working with, with other co-GPs because it, it brings expertise. You know, Maybe people have different skills that you don't or can think from different perspectives. But then also working with an institutional partner to come in with that other 90% of the common equity uh, on the deal and structured in a way that makes sense. And a lot of these institutional folks are saying, hey, if it's not a big enough deal, if I can't deploy, Evan, a check size of at least five to 10 million to you, it's not worth my time. And to a a syndicator, you you, you talk about somebody who wants to cut you a $5 million check, you're like, oh my God, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. But then in order to do that, you've got to have enough meat on the bone in order to go after that kind of uh, money. Now, the other big thing I look for is getting back to the Class C conversation. You're 100% right. I think where a lot of first-time operators mess up is in the diligence period and not thinking through your third-party providers and thinking from an institutional perspective. Let me get an engineering review on this property. Let me make sure that I get a phase one. Let me make sure that we truly have our attorney's review title. And every single previous iteration 
of the, the assets use over the last 50 years and making sure that we're covered. In Florida, we have to think specifically because of climate change, has this Class C asset had its 40-year recertification where the county actually does its own engineering, re engineering review to determine whether or not this building is livable? It's always been a part of our policy in most counties, but not until unfortunate, the unfortunate Champlain Towers building collapse in Surfside right near Miami Beach, which was all over CNN. It was just such an unfortunate incident. Now, that is a major part of every single Class C deal evaluation, and that's affected our insurance premiums too. And so, you know, that's where the rubber really meets the road in diligence, and that's where a lot of the value is going to be created. And I think you're right. CapEx budgets for a lot of first-time operators are not as big as they need to be. Because when you're acquiring Class C or B minus assets, you're going to have more deferred maintenance probably than you thought. Hey, let me let me insert this as a question. You know, my understanding just in the conversations I've had pretty much on the show here is that institutions, although maybe not, you know, I, I, I guess the question is this, are, you know, are institutions interested in, you know, partnering on a, a 30 or 40 unit deal? It sounds like it would be too small for them. But really, it's not meant as a statement. It's really meant as a question. So is it not too small for them? Is that what you're saying? It depends. You're right in that most are going to say eh, 30, 40 units, not my jam. But there are some institutions that have emerging manager programs that are willing to work with first-time operators on slightly smaller deals, hence why I'm looking for 20-plus units. But then the other thing that I look at is the portfolio strategy. I will say that we're in a weird spot in that syndicators are not as popular to institutional investors because institutional investors, when they give you money as a GP, they want to make sure, are you a vertically integrated shop that's not only going to acquire the asset, but also do the asset management, oversee the property management and oversee the construction and reposition of the asset. Are you gonna do everything? If not, we're not gonna give you money. <laughs> but then the other thing uh, that they're looking at is we don't wanna do a fund because funds are not as in vogue as they used to be, unfortunately, in the, 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 the teens, like you know, 2010 through, through really 2019. But they might look at it as a programmatic venture. So you might say, hey, I know that you want to deploy money for at least 100 to 200 units. Let me bring you three deals that in total are about 100 units. Or we could even consider this as a portfolio strategy or acquisition. And then it becomes an interesting conversation that brings institutions. As long as you package it in the right way, your underwriting is up to snuff, You've got the right background to, to really speak the language with, with institutional investors. And if you check those boxes, then you're good to go. You said funds aren't as in vogue now. Why is that? Well, let's look at the economy. We've got a lot of volatility right now, given some of the risks that we spoke about earlier in this conversation between interest rate, economic, uh, inflation risk, et cetera. Given the endogenous risks in the economy, why would 
I, I'm just speaking hypothetically here as an institutional investor or LP. Why would I want to lock up money into a fund with a relatively inexperienced manager for five years? Yeah. Or seven years or 10 years versus let me do a deal by deal. Let me get to know this manager, this GP a little bit better. Let me only have exposure to one asset versus having exposure to many assets that's locked up for five to 10 years. I do think funds are going to come back in vogue. I'm hoping within the next year or two, but right now they're not. And that's what I'm seeing from quite a few investor, the investor appetite uh, out there in the market. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talked to somebody, I don't know, in the last month or so, and, and they just said, it's just, it's even more rudimentary than that. Although there is some crossover in what you said, it's just, it's just getting, it's going to get harder to raise money just because of the uncertainty in the market period end of story. And so people are just going to have to go deal by deal because it's harder to raise whatever the number mm-hmm. is. Um, so, but I just wanted to ask you as well. Well, you know what? This has been uh, a very, very, very interesting conversation from my perspective to see a guy that's, you know, uh, gone out and taken the risk, hung a shingle. And, and like you said, it's a, it's a grind when you're having to do everything from, you know, take the trash out to underwriting. And it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work, but God bless. And uh, I know you'll be successful at it. How, uh, Evan, if somebody wants to learn more about what you do, you could repeat the web address and, or however one would want to, how you would want to be contacted. How, How would they do that? Yes, uh, please find us online at indelicap.com. That's I-N-D-E-L-I-C-A-P.com. You can also find me on uh, Pretty Active on LinkedIn, on Instagram and Facebook. You can just search for Indelible Capital Partners or or for me, Evan A. Shields. Evan A. Shields. Evan, we will uh, hopefully do this a year from now and uh, catch up and see where you're at and where the, where the world is. We're in interesting times. I mean, we always, every, we always say we're in interesting times, but these are really interesting times. Anyway, I appreciate it and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate you having me on the show and looking forward to uh, staying engaged and seeing what happens with the market. You got it. All right, man. Have a good one. You Bye. too. Bye.